It's a wonderful thing to be together in this place. Welcome, River West, those of you tuning in here and those of you tuning in from on home or hopefully somewhere where there's air conditioning. We are we're glad to be together. Is it, are you glad to be here to, this morning, River West? It's good to be together. 113 degrees. Okay, is that actually going to happen though? I mean, is it really going to happen? And here's my question. Once you get to like 107, can you feel a difference after that? Because I don't think so. I don't think so. So I did a wedding yesterday outside in the afternoon. Yeah, it was a precious young couple in our church. And six months ago, we met to start their premarital. And they said, well, we want to do our wedding outside in June. And I said, you know, June's pretty risky in the summer because it can rain in June. (laughs) Oh, little did we know. Now, they did, they moved the wedding from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. and that dropped the temperature from 106 to a cool and balmy 104. It was really significant. Glad to be here. We pledge Bibles open to the Gospel of Luke chapter 24. Believe it or not, we are actually at the very end of our Luke study. We just have two more Sundays in Luke, one chapter, chapter 24 of the Gospel of Luke, and we've come to Luke's account of the resurrection, the empty tomb, and the first appearances of the risen Lord Jesus. And I've titled my sermon this morning, God's Cure for Skepticism. And there's a reason why I chose that title. Here's what we're going to discover as we work through the first 35 verses of chapter 24, and then we'll come back next week. What we're going to find is that Luke's emphasis, when he talks about the resurrection, it's very interesting. He does not narrate the resurrection itself. He doesn't tell us any of the details about how Jesus rose. We don't, we don't get inside the tomb and, and get a play-by-play of the resurrection itself. Luke's emphasis from chapter one, which we're about to read, all the way to the very last verse, is the great lengths that the risen Lord Jesus goes to turn skeptics into believers. That's what Luke's focused on. In fact, if you ask me, Pastor, summarize chapter 24 in one sentence, I, I would summarize it with a question. How, do, how does a group of radical skeptics to the resurrection become an army of proclaimers by the end of the chapter? That's what we're going to learn about this morning. Will you look at it with me? We're going to read the first 12 verses here, chapter 24. Here's what happened next. But on the first day of the week, At early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And the they here is the women that we just read about two verses earlier in the end of 23, verse 55. This is the women who had followed the soldiers. They saw where Jesus was laid in a tomb, and then they went to prepare spices to embalm the body. They come back at dawn. Verse 2, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living from among the dead? He is not here, 
but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe it. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The very first skeptics of the resurrection were the people who were the closest to Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. The first skeptics to the resurrection were the closest followers of Jesus, the disciples. They hear this account And it sounded to them like utter nonsense. Where it says they heard it and they thought it was an idle tale, that could be translated utter nonsense. And they refused to believe. And I want to hover over this for a minute because I think we moderns sometimes, if we're not careful, we have a tendency to look back and sort of look down on ancient people and think they were so gullible. You know, they were prone to this kind of believing in miracles about the resurrection. C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery, where you look back and you look down and you say, well, of course they believed in these kinds of fairy tales, right? But Luke, wait a minute. Luke paints a portrait of a group of followers who were experiencing tons of doubt about the events that were taking place. They had to be convinced. Even when a group of insiders, some of their inner circle, come with a first-hand witness, they refuse to believe. Skepticism is a natural part of the human experience, okay? It's normal. In fact, think about this. Skepticism sometimes, often, happens even to the people who are the closest to Jesus. It's normal. Even if you've been following Jesus most of your life, to experience bouts of skepticism, waves of skepticism can come about certain doctrines of the Christian faith. Friends, that is perfectly normal. It's actually healthy. And I just want to acknowledge that right out of the gate here because I have a feeling in a room this size and with the number of people we have tuning in online that there are those out there who are wrestling with genuine questions about your Christian faith. And sometimes when you wrestle, sometimes you worry, well, is the the church going to be a safe place? Can I come with my questions? Can I ask my questions? Can I share my doubts? Is this a place where I will be received or is this a place where I will be shunned or embarrassed? Will I be made to feel stupid? And what I want to say is absolutely not. Skepticism can be really healthy. Your skepticism, your questions, some of your doubts, those are welcome here. There's a church in Manhattan that I I follow and appreciate, Redeemer Presbyterian, and on their webpage, one of their tabs right on their webpage says, Skeptics 
welcome. <laughs> I love that. I just want to put a sign right over the door. Skeptics, welcome. Bring your questions. A couple months ago, I got an email from a man in our church, and he said, I'm so sorry to bother you. I know you're busy. I know you probably don't have time for stuff like this, but would you spend a half an hour with me because I'm really wrestling with the problem of evil? And I thought, wait a minute, you're not coming to talk to me about our position on masks, okay? You actually want to talk about theology. Of course I want to meet with you. I spent $20,000 on a seminary education. That's what it was for. I'd love to talk to you about the problem of evil and how you're wrestling with that because skepticism can be a natural part of the Christian experience. In fact, it can be healthy. But we have to keep in mind that there's a difference between skepticism and cynicism, okay? Those are different. Skepticism means to remain open, intellectually inquisitive. You, 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 don't, want to, you don't want easy believism. You don't want to be gullible to conspiracy theories, all right? You remain open and you remain sensitive to evidence when it's presented to you. And this is really good and really healthy. And for Christians, skepticism can cause you to keep going on your journey of faith. But cynicism is different. Cynicism is becoming closed-minded. Your mind is made up, and it doesn't matter how much evidence you're presented with, you will never change your view. And that's different. That's different. And sometimes people claim that it's their skepticism that's keeping them from belief in the claims of the gospel when in fact what's really happening is they're a cynic hiding behind the pretense of skepticism. So you want to make sure your heart is right. And the amazing thing about this passage is that Jesus goes on an all-out mission to reach skeptics. He doesn't shun them. He doesn't embarrass them. He doesn't shut them down. And he does not abandon them. He pursues them. And I love this. And what we're going to see this morning is that there are three stages that take these disciples from skepticism to belief. Three steps that take a person from a skeptic to the resurrection to a proclaimer. And I want to walk through those steps with you today. Will you write these down? Step number one in God's cure for skepticism is the empty tomb properly understood. The empty tomb, but properly understood. The empty tomb is a compelling piece of empirical evidence for the resurrection. However, on its own, it did not have the power to trigger faith immediately. It had to be seen and it had to be interpreted against the backdrop of a deeper reality, the reality of God and his divine plan for redemption. This is why the angels come. The women arrived, look back at verse Verses 1 and 2, they arrive on the scene fully prepared to find a body. They've come with spices, which is odd seeing that Jesus himself had said on multiple occasions that on the third day he would rise again. Isn't that interesting? And yet they show up on the third day fully expecting to find 
a body. And when they arrived and found the stone rolled away and there's no body, the significance of this is not immediately obvious. It does not change them immediately. In fact, Luke tells us they walk away perplexed. They're perplexed by this. Even Peter, he runs. Peter runs himself and he peers in. He goes in, he finds linen cloths, which by the way, that right there is your evidence that that there were no grave robbers because the only reason grave robbers would come was for the value of the linen, the linen shroud. So a grave robber would never steal a body and leave the linen behind. That was the only thing that was valuable. But even Peter, Luke, Luke tells us, he's marveling, but marveling is not belief. Marveling is just marveling. Now, the empty tomb is, is an unbelievably strong evidence for the resurrection. There have been countless books, articles written about it. I, I have with me today a dozen copies of at least two articles, one a short form, one a long form. If you have never really wrestled with the claims of the empty tomb and you want to wrestle with that, come see me afterwards. I'll give you way more paperwork than you ever wanted. Okay, so it's really compelling. But here's the funny thing about evidence. And I want you to think about this with me. There's a funny thing about evidence. A person can always explain it away if they want to. You can always explain away evidence if you want to. I walk outside And I stand outside and I take in the full beauty of creation. Now, this analogy breaks down on a day like today, okay? But go with me to a day when it's 85, all right? I go outside. I take in the beauty of God's creation. I take in the complexity of it. I I take in the fact that our universe is so finely tuned to allow human life to occur that it's without explanation on natural causes. I take all of that in. I take in the beauty. I take in the design. I take in the obvious purpose for much of, of, of creation. And what do I conclude? There must be an absolutely loving, powerful, holy, omnipotent creator. But someone else would walk outside and they would take in all the same evidence and they could walk away and conclude, I don't see any evidence for I think this is all just a big cosmic accident. Well, how does that happen? When I was in biology class, when I was a sophomore in college at Willamette University, I remember sitting in some microbiology class. I have a microbiology major, which I use every single day in pastoral ministry. And... And I sat in class and we were talking about bacterial flagellum. All right, get super excited right now because I'm about to explain to you. Because <laughs> we're learning about bacterial flagellum and, and what was happening, the, the professor was making a case for evolution, Darwinian unguided evolution. And we were talking about bacterial flagellum and we were looking, this is, a, this is like a, 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 sing, a, a tiny bacterium that you can only see under a microscope. And maybe you remember this from biology class and the amazing, The amazing thing about some bacteria is that they live primarily in water, so they need a mechanism to move around. So I want to go to the next slide. This is the flagellum. This is is a cartoon rendering of what can be seen under a microscope. And what you are looking at is the most complex engine, rotary engine, 
that could ever be designed, more complex than any boat motor you can imagine, with a, with, within that cell, a, a stasis that stays, that's, that a rotor that moves and a part of the engine that, is, that remains stable, and then protein that creates a tail and, and that can spin, and it's got dozens and dozens of complex parts, okay? So we're describing this, and then my prof- and I'll never forget this. I wrote it down in my notes. I'm going to read to you what she said. She got to the end of describing this, and she said, "Unfortunately, this system has the inconvenient appearance of being designed." <laughs> and I said, "Isn't it inconvenient when things appear to be designed?" <laughs> right? It's what biologists call irreducible complexity, which basically means a system like this, in order for it to have evolved, you would have to have less complex versions that would evolve at the same time and still work together. And in irreducible complexity, that would never happen because less complex versions of each of the 12 pieces would have no purpose put together in an earlier form. And I thought, well, why would, she, why would she be resisting the appearance of design? And the reason was she had already concluded there's no God. And when you, when you already have your starting place, it does not matter how much evidence you're presented with. You can explain it away. I'm halfway through an amazing book that I recommend to you called The Return of the God Hypothesis by a philosopher of science named Stephen Meyer, This book, the subtitle is Three Scientific Discoveries That Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe. And what he essentially does in this book is he says, in the last century, since the turn of the 20th century, scientists over and over and over have made discoveries that make it impossible to explain our universe using only natural causes. There's got to be something else going on. So for example, Albert Einstein, at the turn of the 20th century, he, he was working on his theory of gravitation, and as he was working on his theory of gravitation, he started to realize there is undeniable evidence that our universe had a beginning. Now you might say, well, how does that prove God? Well, think about it. If our universe had a beginning, beginning what scientists now call the Big Bang, it's what Christians call Genesis 1, verse 1. But, but if our universe had a beginning, think about this. That means there was a moment where all matter, material, space, and time came into being, and there was a split second right before that moment where there was no matter, no time, no space, nothing material. Now, wait a minute. That means we went from no material to material. And the scientist goes, that means we do not have a material explanation for how the universe began. We can't. Because there could not have been material there before the creation of the universe to create matter. You don't have a natural explanation for nature because nature did not exist before nature existed. 
It takes a little logic, I know, but do you know what that means? You need a supernatural explanation for the beginning of the universe. And you know what Albert Einstein said when he started to discover this? He said, I don't want to believe this. I don't, I want to believe that the universe is eternal because if I believe that the universe had a beginning, that sounds strangely like the beginning of the Christian Bible, which is precisely the thing I don't want science to prove. The empty tomb is a sign that extreme skeptics can explain away. The women took a wrong term and they went to the, they went to the wrong tomb. Not likely. They were there the day before. They, they saw it. There were grave robbers. Not likely. They left linen behind. Jesus only swooned on the cross. Have you ever heard this one? It's called the swoon theory. He didn't actually die. He only swooned and then he was, re, he was revived. It's really not very likely. Dogs dragged the body away. This is kind of like the dog stole my homework um, excuse, right? right? And depend, now listen, depending on where you stand, you may decide that one or more of these explanations is compelling for you. Okay, But what if you were to take the evidence of the empty tomb and what if you were to place it against a backdrop of other things that we know to be true? Like, we, like, like the character of God, the reality of a fallen world that needs saving, the plan of a divine God to, to bring Redemption. What if you saw the empty tomb against the backdrop of other evidence? Suddenly what you would discover is that the empty tomb is very compelling. It actually makes a ton of sense. And this is exactly what the angels do. So look now at verse seven. What the angels do when they show up is they say, they say to the women who are just perplexed, but they're not believers, they say, don't you remember the countless times that Jesus predicted this? Look at verse seven, that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Jesus didn't say this might happen. Jesus didn't say this ought to happen. Jesus said over and over, it's 18 times in the Gospel of Luke, he uses that word must. This is going to happen. It's a necessity. And the angels say, see the evidence for the empty tomb against the backdrop of this deeper reality. And it can begin to change your heart. And you begin to realize this makes a ton of sense. But that's just step one. The empty tomb. Okay, so let's keep reading. We left off verse 13. Let's, let's, let's look at the second step. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. So Luke wants us to realize this is the same day. All this stuff is connected. That very day, two of them leave Jerusalem. They head out to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Will you just put your finger on that? I want to just point out, this is a very odd statement. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Jesus, he shows, this is the risen Lord. He shows up next to them. They're walking, but their 
they cannot recognize Jesus. And in the Greek, the language is actually really strong. The Greek word is to be seized. It's their, their eyes have been seized. And the way that Luke describes it, it's very evident that the one doing the seizing is God himself. God has prevented them from recognizing the risen Christ. And, and the reader is asking the question, well, now why in the world would God do that? And the answer is preparing the reader for something powerful that has to happen that could unseize their eyes. And think about this. It's not the appearance of the risen Christ that does it because he's already standing there. Something else has to happen that's very powerful that actually has the power to open their eyes to the true identity of Jesus. What will it be? Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Verse 17, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Have you been living under a rock? Are you not on Instagram? What is going on? Or TikTok, that's okay. Anyway, for the younger folk. All right, and he said to them, what things? And they said and they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Now look at this. Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. So the irony is, they're like, it's the third day, which should have triggered <laughs> their memory, right? But I want to ask you a question. What's wrong with their description of Jesus right there? They, they get a lot right. The, the, the problem is actually not what they say. Everything they say is correct. The problem is what's missing from this definition, right? Is Jesus merely a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God? Or is he something more? Is there hope for redemption? Is the hope for redemption of Israel stamped out by the death of the Messiah? Or... Is it possible that hope for redemption requires the death of the Messiah? So the reader is watching this go down and the reader is realizing, oh, these two disciples, man, they've been following Jesus for a long time and they're missing some really critical information about his identity. It probably needs to be cleared up. And they go on. Moreover, verse 22, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is like 
the greatest Bible study that has ever gone down in the history. I would kill to be there, to be a part of that Bible study, okay? When they put out a sign-up, it filled up immediately, all right? The greatest Bible study of all time. And here we come to step two in God's cure for skepticism. It's the scriptures properly explained. Step one is the empty tomb properly understood, but step two is the scriptures properly explained. Jesus didn't show up with some dazzling display of his resurrection glory. He didn't write in the sky, it's me, I'm risen from the dead. He didn't, he didn't like impose himself upon them. He didn't force them to believe. He didn't do anything to bypass their brains to prevent them from using their cognitive faculties, their ability of reason, their ability to look at evidence and think about it. He didn't pass over any of that and force them into a, a place of belief. Do you know what he did? He opened the scriptures and he interpreted them for them. And they needed it. This is astounding. The Greek word right there in verse 27, the interpret, is the word hermenuo, hermenuo, which is the word from which we get our English word hermeneutics. You ever heard of this word? Hermeneutics. It's basically a fancy word that describes interpretation. Hermeneutics, how you interpret the Bible. Here's my question for you. What is the hermeneutic of Jesus? How does Jesus interpret the Old Testament? Well, he tells us, verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. By the way, that's shorthand for the entire Old Testament. Moses is the first five books, the Pentateuch. The prophets would represent the Psalms and the writings. So we went from Genesis all the way to 2 Chronicles in the Hebrew Bible. In our Bible, it's the minor prophets. And you know what he said? He interpreted all of those Verses in all the scriptures concerning the things about himself. The hermeneutic, the hermeneutic of Jesus is that the entire Bible is about me, which either tells us he had an incredibly high view of himself, okay, or it tells us that as the Son of God, Jesus understands something about the Hebrew scriptures. The whole, it's one connected story pointing over and over and over again to our need for a Messiah who has come. Every verse, every story, every, every psalm, every proverb, every account, every description of the horrific nature of sin from Genesis all the way through the entire Old Testament has been pointing the reader always forward to the reality we need a Savior. We need a Messiah. And this verse 27 is considered by many scholars to be the most important verse in the Bible about how to interpret the Bible, how to interpret the Bible. And the reason the disciples were blinded to the true identity of Jesus and to the clear reality of the resurrection was because they did not understand the fundamental meaning of their own scriptures. So Jesus said, let me open the scriptures and let me interpret them for you. 
Now, friends, this is why in the church it's so critical to gather regularly, to be a part of a worshiping community where the scriptures are opened, but not just with any old interpretation, okay? With Jesus' hermeneutic. No matter where you go, no matter what passage we're studying, you'll hear from this pulpit, we will always show you, this is how this passage helps you understand the meaning of the gospel, the true identity of Jesus Christ. Not all interpretations of the Bible are equal. Not all interpretations are equal. And there are a lot of interpretations out there that are just downright not that great. Notice, it doesn't say, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning your best life now. It doesn't say that. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning American modern politics. It doesn't say that. If you're listening to teachers and they're opening the scriptures and they're regularly giving you self-help talks about how to have your best life now, it might be time to tune out that teacher. If you're tuning into a teacher or someone online and every time they open the Bible, it's just a nonstop flow of their personal political views, it might be time to turn off that teacher because the Bible is about Jesus. Somebody say amen or I'm walking out of here. The Bible is about Jesus. And every time you open the Bible and every time a pastor opens the Bible, the pastor should end the sermon by saying, this is what this tells us about the heart of the gospel. That is what the scriptures are for. And the disciples needed the son of the living God to give them the proper interpretation. And I love it. But you know what's amazing? They needed one more step. They weren't, their eyes were not open yet. Okay, step number three. I'm gonna actually give it to you now because you won't, you won't even believe it when you read it, okay? Step number one, the empty tomb properly understood. Step number two, the scriptures properly explained. Step number three is the Christ meal properly received. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So Jesus went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, look at this. This is, I never realized the significance of this. He was at table with them. He took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And now the mission is accomplished. So he vanished. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking 
of the bread. Luke repeats it in case you missed it. Step number three, the Christ meal. The historical evidence for the resurrection is compelling. The correct interpretation of the scriptures is critical. But the decisive moment, the moment when their eyes were opened and they recognized him, happened in the intimacy of a table fellowship with Jesus and specifically in his action of taking bread, blessing it, breaking it, and giving it to them. Why? I think maybe they remembered that day in Galilee when thousands of people came out into the wilderness and they were going to starve. And what did Jesus do? He took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and they watched a miracle. And, they, and everyone wondered, who is this? this? Clearly, this is someone divine. I think it's that. And they had heard the report from the 11 who were there in the upper room. We just studied it two chapters ago when Jesus in his final meal he, he gathered his disciples and he talked about what was coming and he washed their feet and he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them and these two on the road that was the moment that was, that was what caused the scales to fall that created the unseizing of their blind eyes and they knew immediately this is Jesus, the risen Lord. When it comes to the cure for your skepticism, there is simply no substitute for a personal encounter with the risen Christ. That's what you most need, a personal encounter. All the evidence, all the arguments in the world cannot replace a personal experience with Jesus himself. And you say, well, pastor, it's 2,000 years since that happened. Where in the world would I go today to have a personal experience with the risen Christ? And my answer is, it happens actually every Sunday, right here, when we take communion together, the Christ meal, the fellowship where as a community, we gather and we take bread that Jesus has blessed and we know the living Christ is with us in this moment. That's where a person can encounter the risen Christ. But I just have one more thing I want to say to you. You have a role to play in this, okay? You have a role to play. This is why I said the third step is the Christ meal properly received. Do you remember that? Properly, you have a part to play. And you say, what, what is my part? Well, look back with me at 28, just really quick, something fascinating. There's this little detail where as they're drawing near to the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further, but they urged him to stay. Now, I don't think this was Jesus pretending that he was, that he was leaving. This wasn't Jesus going, oh, you guys are about to have dinner. Well, I guess I'll just keep going on down the road, you know, you know, hoping they'll invite him for dinner or something. No, this is Jesus. Actually, genuinely, he would have moved on had they not stopped him and said, we desperately want more of your company. Please stay with us. If they had not said that, Jesus would have moved on. 
And there's a lesson here. Jesus will never force himself on anyone who doesn't want the fellowship of his company. He just won't do it. But for the person who craves something more, for the person who in their heart, they're burning, they're, they're saying, there's something happening here. I want, I want to learn more. I need to see more. I, I want a deeper experience of Jesus. I promise you, I promise you, if that is your heart, Jesus will meet you and he will reveal more and more the full reality of his identity. Amen? This past week, I'll close with a quick little story. This past week, Marianne and I, Pastor Marianne and I went to visit one of the saints of our church. Her name is Sharon and she's in the final days of her struggle with pancreatic cancer. Sharon Rupert, and she's probably tuning in online and we love her. She's a precious member of our church body. And the, the amazing thing, we, we went to her home and we prayed with her. She's on hospice care essentially in her home. And Marianne and I, when we left, we were like, did you notice how much she was glowing with the joy of Jesus? I mean, her face looked like it was on fire with joy. Her heart was burning <laughs> with love for Christ. And there was actually only one moment in the entire conversation where Sharon expressed sadness. And you know what it was? It was missing this. She was like, I miss so much being with the body. It's been great to worship online and I need to continue to worship online for my safety, but you have no idea how much I miss being there in the room with the living Lord Jesus. Why? Because my friends, Jesus Christ is here with us now and he's gonna be with us in the very next moment we're gonna participate in together. If we pull out that packet, that communion packet, I'm gonna have the worship team come and we'll do this a little different. You can start to open it up, but I'm still hovering over this last moment where these two disciples, their eyes were opened at the table. Their eyes were opened at the table, the Christ meal. And they recognize Jesus. And I want to lead us in a prayer about that. Will you bow your heads with me? And let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful for Luke's account. The great length that you went to pursue skeptics to provide evidence, to open eyes and hearts to interpret scripture, culminating in a deeply personal experience where you shared a meal. And I just know, God, with all of my heart that you're with us now in this moment. Through your spirit, the very presence of the risen Christ in this midst, as we, your family, we gather around a table together. to enjoy a meal. And for those of us, Lord, who have been following you for a long time, this is just a moment of joy and where you continue to show us your glory. 
But I'm also so thankful, Lord, for those who are with us who have been wrestling, maybe even doubting, skeptical. Maybe the resurrection has been an obstacle, an intellectual hurdle to get over. Oh, how I pray that in the next few moments you will will meet us, show us your glory, convince us. We thank you for it, Jesus. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen.